0: Welcome to the Stillwaters Revival Books reading of Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. This is the tenth reading in this series. Stillwaters Revival Books makes thousands of classic Puritan and Reform books and sermons available, free and at great discounts in print, audio, and video formats at PuritanDownloads.com. If you would like to join our email list to stay up to date about all the new, free, and discounted Puritan and Reformed resources we make available, please send an email to swrb at swrb.com with the word ADD in the subject line. For more information about the Puritan Publishing Ministry of SWRB, please email us at swrb at swrb.com. And now to our reading of Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. Section 76 The Diatribe, having thus first cited numberless passages of Scripture, as it were a most formidable army in support of free will, In order that it might inspire courage into the confessors and martyrs, the men, saints, and women saints on the side of free will, and strike terror into all the fearful and trembling deniers of and transgressors against free will, imagines to itself a poor contemptible handful only standing up to oppose free will. And therefore, it brings forward no more than two scriptures, which seem to be more prominent than the rest, to stand up on their side, intent only upon slaughter, and that to be executed without much trouble. The one of these passages is from Exodus 9.13, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. The other is from Malachi 1.2-3. Jacob have I loved but Esau have I hated. Paul has explained at large both these passages in Romans 9 11 through 17 but according to the judgment of the diatribe what a detestable and useless discussion he has made of it so that did not the Holy Spirit know a little something of rhetoric there would be some danger lest being broken at the outset by such an artfully managed show of contempt, he should despair of his cause and openly yield to free will before the sound of the trumpet for the battle. But, however, I, as a recruit taken into the rear of those two passages, will display the forces of our side, although, where the state of the battle is such, that one can put to flight ten thousand, there is no need of forces. If, therefore, one passage shall defeat free will, its numberless forces will profit it nothing. Section 77 In this part of the discussion, then, The diatribe has found out a new way of eluding the most clear passages. That is, it will have that there is, in the most simple and clear passages, a trope. And as before, when speaking in defense of free will, it eluded all the imperative and conditional sentences of the law by means of conclusions tacked, and similitudes added to them. So now, where it designs to speak against us, it twists all the words of the divine promise and declaration just which way it pleases, by means of a trope which it has invented, thus being everywhere an incomprehensible proteus. Nay, it demands with a haughty brow that this permission should be granted it, saying that we ourselves, when pressed closely, are accustomed to get off by means of invented tropes, as in these instances, on which thou wilt stretch forth thine hand. Exodus 8.5 that is, grace shall extend thine hand on which it will make you a new heart, Ezekiel eighteen thirty one. That is, grace shall make you a new heart and the like. It seems, therefore, an indignity offered that Luther should be allowed to give forth an interpretation so forced and twisted and that it should not be far more allowable to follow the interpretations of the most approved doctors. You see then that here the contention is not for the text itself nor no, nor for the conclusions and similitudes but for tropes and interpretations.
1: When then
0: shall we ever have any plain and pure text without tropes and conclusions, either for or against free will? Has the scriptures no such texts anywhere? And shall the cause of free will remain forever in doubt, like a reed shaken with the wind, as being that which can be supported by no certain text, but which stands upon conclusions and tropes only, introduced by men mutually disagreeing with each other? But let our sentiment rather be this, that neither conclusion nor trope is to be admitted into the scriptures, unless the evident state of the particulars or the absurdity of any particular as militating against an article of faith require it but that the simple pure and natural meaning of the words is to be adhered to which is according to the rules of grammar and to a common use of speech which God has given unto men. For if every one be allowed according to his own lust to invent conclusions and tropes in the scriptures what will the whole Scripture be but a reed shaken by the wind, or a kind of vertumnus? Then, in truth, nothing could to a certainty be determined on, or proved concerning any one article of faith, which you might not subject to cavillation by means of some trope. But every trope ought to be avoided as the most deadly poison which is not absolutely required by the scriptures itself. See what happened to that trope inventor, Origen, in expounding the scriptures. What just occasion did he give the calumniator, Porphyry, to say, Those who favor Origin can be no great friends to Hieronymus. What happened to the Arians by means of that trope according to which they made Christ, God, nominally? What happened in our own times to those new prophets concerning the words of Christ? This is my body. One invented a trope in the word this, another in the word is, another in the word body. I have therefore observed this, that all heresies and errors in the Scripture have not arisen from the simplicity of words, as in the general report throughout the world, but from men not attending to the simplicity of the words, and hatching tropes and conclusions out of their own brain. For example, on whichsoever thou wilt, stretch forth thine hand, I, As far as I can remember, never put upon these words so violent an interpretation as to say, Grace shall extend thine hand on whichsoever it will. Make yourselves a new heart, that is, grace shall make you a new heart, and the like. Although the diatribe traduces me thus in a public work, from being so carried away with and eluded by its own tropes and conclusions that it knows not what it says about anything but I said this that by the words stretch forth thine hand simply taken as they are without tropes or conclusions nothing else is signified than what is required of us in the stretching forth of our hand and what we ought to do according to the nature of an imperative expression, with grammarians and in the common use of speech. But the diatribe, not attending in the simplicity of the word, but with violence, adducing conclusions and tropes, interprets the words thus, Stretch forth thine hand, that is, thou art able by thine own power to stretch forth thine hand, Make you a new heart That is Ye are able to make a new heart Believe in Christ That is Ye are able to believe in Christ So that with it What is spoken imperatively And what is spoken indicatively Is the same thing Or else it is prepared to aver That the scripture is ridiculous and to no purpose, and these interpretations, which no grammarian will bear, must not be called in theologians violent or invented, but the productions of the most approved doctors received by so many ages. But it is easy for the diatribe to admit and follow tropes in this part of the discussion, seeing that it cares not at all, whatever what is said be certain or uncertain nay it aims at making all the things uncertain for design, its design is that the doctrines concerning free wills should be left alone rather than searched into therefore it is enough for it to be enabled in any way to avoid those passages which it finds itself closely pressed in but as for me who am i who am maintaining a serious cause and who am inquiring what is to the greatest certainty the truth for the establishing of consciences i must act very differently for me i say it is not enough that you say there may be a trope here but i must inquire whether there ought to be or can't be a trope there. For if you cannot prove there must, of necessity, be a trope in that passage, you will affect nothing at all. There stands there this word of God. I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. Exodus 4.21 Romans 9.17-18 If you say that it can be understood, or ought to be understood thus, I will permit it to be hardened. I hear you say, indeed, that it may be so understood, and I hear this trope used by everyone. I destroyed you because I did not correct you immediately when you began to do wrong. But here, but here, there is no place for that interpretation. We are not here inquiring whether that trope be in use. We are not inquiring whether anyone can use it in that passage of Paul. But this is a point of inquir- inquiry. Whether or not it be sure and safe to use this passage plainly as it stands and whether Paul would have it so used we are not inquiring into the use of an indifferent reader of this passage but into the use of the author Paul himself what will you do with a conscience inquiring thus behold God as the author saith I will harden the heart of Pharaoh the meaning of the word harden is plain and well known but a man who reads this passage tells me that in this place to harden signifies to give an occasion of becoming hardened because the sinner is not immediately corrected. But by what authority does, the, does he do this? With what design? By what necessity is the natural signification of this passage thus twisted and suppose the reader and interpreter should be in error how shall it be proved that such a turn ought to be given to this passage it is dangerous nay impious thus to twist the word of God who without necessity and without authority this is done Would you then comfort a poor soul thus laboring in this way? Origen thought so, and so, cease to search into such things, because they are curious and superfluous. But, he would answer you, this admonition should have been given to Moses or Paul before they wrote, and so also to God himself. for. It is they who vex us with these curious and superfluous scriptures. Section 78 This miserable state-gap of tropes, therefore, profits the diatribe nothing. But this proteus of ours must here be held fast, and compelled to satisfy us fully concerning the trope in this passage. And that, by scriptures the most clear, or by miracles the most evident. For as to its mere opinion, even though supported by the labored industry of all the ages, we give no credit to that whatever. But we urge on and press it home that there can be here no trope whatever, But what the word of God is to be understood according to the plain meaning of the words. For it is not given unto us, as the diatribe persuades itself, to turn the words of God backwards and forwards according to your own lust. If that were the case, what is there in the whole scripture that might not be resolved into the philosophy of an acts? Axagoras, that anything might be made from anything. And thus I will say, God created the heavens and the earth. that is, he stationed them, but did not make them out of nothing. Or he created the heavens and the earth, that is the angels and the devils, or the just and the wicked who, I ask, if this were the case, might not become a theologian at the first opening of a book? Let this, therefore, be a fixed and settled point, that since the diatribe cannot prove that there is a trope in these our passages which it utterly destroys, it is compelled to see to us that the words are to be understood according to their plain meaning, even though it should prove that the same trope is contained in all the other passages of Scripture and used in common by everyone. And by the gaining of this one point, all our arguments are at the same time defended which the diatribe designed to refute, and thus its refutation is found to affect nothing, to do nothing, and to be nothing. Whenever, therefore, this passage of Moses, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh, is interpreted thus, my long-suffering, by which I bear with the sinner, leads indeed others unto repentance. But it shall render Pharaoh more hardened in iniquity. It is a pretty interpretation, but it is not proved that it ought to be so interpreted. But I am not content with what is said. I must have the proof. And that also of Paul, he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy and on whom he will he hardeneth Romans 9.18 is possibly interpreted thus that is God hardens when he does not immediately punish the sinner and he has mercy when he immediately invites to repentance by afflictions but how is this interpretation proved? And also that of Isaiah 53:17? Why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and harden our heart from thy fear? Be it so that Jerome interprets it thus from origin. He is said to make error who does not immediately recall from error. But who shall certify us that Jerome and Origen interpret rightly? It is therefore a settled determination with me not to argue upon the authority of any teacher whatever, but upon that of scripture alone. What origins and Jerome's does that diatribe then, forgetting its own determination, set before us? Especially when, among all the ecclesiastical writers, there are scarcely any who have handled the Holy Scriptures less to purpose and more absurdly than Origen and Jerome. In a word, this liberty of interpretation by a new and unheard of kind of grammar goes to confound all things. So that when God saith, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh, you are to change the persons and understand it thus. Pharaoh hardens himself by my long suffering. God hardeneth our hearts that is we harden ourselves by God's deferring the punishment thou O Lord hast made us err that is we have made ourselves to err by thy not punishing us so also God's having mercy no longer signifies his giving grace or showing mercy or forgiving sin or justifying or delivering from evil but on the contrary signifies bringing on evil and punishing. In fact, by these tropes matters will come to this. You may say that God had mercy upon the children of Israel when he sent them to into Assyria and into Babylon because he there punished the sinners and there invited them by affliction to repentance and that on the other hand when he delivered them and brought them back he had not then mercy upon them but hardened them that is by his long suffering and mercy he gave them an occasion of becoming hardened and also God sending the Savior Christ into this world will not be said to be the mercy but the hardening of God because by his mercy he gave men an occasion of hardening themselves on the other hand his destroying Jerusalem and scattering the Jews even unto this day is his having mercy on them because he punishes the sinners and invites them to repentance moreover his carrying the saints away into heaven at the day of judgment will not be in mercy but in hardening because his long suffering he will give them an occasion of abusing it. But his thrusting the wicked down to hell will be his mercy because he punishes the sinners. Who, I pray you, ever heard of such examples of the mercy and wrath of God as these? And be it so, that good men are made better both by the long-suffering and by the severity of God. Yet, when we are speaking of the good and the bad promiscuously, these tropes, by an utter perversion of the common manner of speaking, will make out of the mercy of God his wrath. In his wrath, out of his mercy, seeing that they call it the wrath of God when he does good, and his mercy when he afflicts. Moreover, if God be said then to harden when he does good and endures with long suffering, and then to have mercy when he afflicts and punishes, why is he more particularly said to harden Pharaoh than to harden the children of Israel? Or that the, whole, that the whole world? Did he not do good to the children of Israel? Does he not do good to the whole world? Does he not bear with the wicked? Does he not reign upon the evil and upon the good? Why is he rather said to have mercy upon the children of Israel than upon Pharaoh? Did he not afflict the children of Israel in Egypt and in the desert? And be it so that some abuse and some rightly use the goodness and the wrath of God, yet, according to your definition, to harden is the same as to indulge the wicked by long suffering and goodness. And to have mercy is not to indulge, but to visit and punish. Therefore, with reverence to God, he, by his continual goodness, does nothing but harden, and by his perpetual punishment does nothing but show mercy. Section 79. But this is the most excellent statement of all that God is said to harden when he indulges sinners by long suffering, but to have mercy upon them when he visits and afflicts and thus by severity invites to repentance. What, I ask, did God leave undone in afflicting, punishing, and calling Pharaoh to repentance? Are there not in his dealings with him ten plagues recorded? If, therefore, your definitions stand good that showing mercy is punishing and calling the sinner immediately, God certainly had mercy upon Pharaoh... Why then does God say, I will have mercy upon Pharaoh? Whereas he saith, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. For in every, in the very act of having mercy upon him, that is, as you say, Erasmus, afflicting and punishing him, he saith, I will harden him. That is, as you say, I will bear with him and do him good. What can be heard of more enormous? Where are now your tropes? Where are your origins? Where are your Jerome's? Where are all your most approved doctors whom one poor creature, Luther, daringly contradicts? But at this rate the flesh must Unawares impel the man to talk who trifles with the words of God and believes not their solemn importance. The text of Moses itself, therefore, incontrovertibly, proves that here these tropes are mere inventions and things of naught and that by those words I will harden the heart of Pharaoh something else is signified far different and of greater importance than doing good or affliction and punishment because we cannot deny that both were tried upon Pharaoh with the greatest care and concern for what wrath and punishment could be more instant than his being stricken by so many wonders and with so many plagues that, as Moses himself testifies, the like had never been. Nay, even Pharaoh himself, repenting, was moved by them more than once. But he was not effectually moved, nor did he persevere. And what long-suffering or goodness of God could be greater than his taking away the plague so easily, hardening his sin so often, So often bringing back the good, and so often taking away the evil, yet neither is of any avail. He still saith, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. You see, therefore, that even if your hardening and mercy, that is, your glosses and tropes, be granted to the greatest extent, as supported by use and by example, and as seen in the case of Pharaoh, there is yet a hardening that still remains and that the hardening of which Moses speaks must of necessity be one and that of which you dream another section eighty but since I have to fight with fiction framers and ghosts let me turn to ghost raising also let me suppose which is an impossibility that the trope of which the diatribe dreams avails in this passage in order that I may see which way the diatribe will elude the being compelled to declare that all things take place according to the will of God alone and from necessity in us and how it will clear God from being himself the author and cause of our becoming hardened for if it be true that God is then said to harden when he bears with long suffering and does not immediately punish, these two positions still stand firm. First, that man nevertheless of necessity serves sin. For when it is granted that free will cannot will anything good, which kind of free will the diatribe undertook to prove, then By the goodness of a long-suffering God, it becomes nothing better, but of necessity worse. Wherefore, it still remains that all that we do is done from necessity. And next, that God appears to be just as cruel in this bearing with us by his long-suffering, as he does by being preached as willing to harden by that will inscrutable. For when he sees that free will cannot will good, but becomes worse by his enduring with long-suffering, by this very long-suffering he appears to be most cruel and to delight in our miseries, seeing that he could remedy them if he willed, and might not thus endure with long-suffering if he willed, nay, that he could not thus endure unless he willed for who can compel him against his will that will therefore without which nothing is done being admitted and it being admitted also that free will cannot will anything good all is advanced in vain that is advanced either in excusation of God or in accusation of free will for the language of free will is ever this I cannot and God will not what can I do? if he have mercy upon me by affliction I shall be nothing benefited but must of necessity become worse unless he give me his spirit but this he gives me not though he might give it me if he willed, it is certain, therefore, that he wills not to give. Section 81 Nor do the similitudes adduced make any thing to the purpose, where it is said by the diatribe, as under the same sun mud is hardened and wax melted, As by the same shower the cultivated earth bring forth fruit and the uncultivated earth thorns, so by the same long-suffering God some are hardened and some are converted. For we are not now dividing free will into two different natures and making the one like mud and the other like wax. The one like cultivated earth and the other like uncultivated earth but we are speaking concerning that one free will equally impotent in all men which as it cannot will good is nothing but mud nothing but uncultivated earth nor does Paul say that God as the potter makes one vessel unto honor and the other unto dishonor Out of different kinds of clay, but he saith, out of the same lump. Romans 9.21 Therefore, as mud always becomes harder, and uncultivated earth always becomes more thorny, even so, free will always becomes worse, both under the hardening sun of long-suffering, and under the softening shower of rain. If, therefore, free will be of one and the same nature and impotency in all men, no reason can be given why it should attain unto grace in one and not in the other. If nothing else be preached to all but the goodness of a long-suffering, and the punishment of a mercy showing God for it is, gra- it is a granted position that free will in all is alike defined to be that which cannot will good and indeed if it were not so God could not elect anyone nor would there be any place left for election but for free will only As choosing or refusing the long-suffering and anger of God. And if God be thus robbed of his power and wisdom to elect. What will there be remaining but the idle fortune. Under the name of which all things take place at random. Nay, we shall at length come to this. That men may be saved and damned without God's knowing anything at all about it. As not having determined by certain election who should be saved and who should be damned, but having set before all men in general his hardening goodness and long suffering, and his mercy showing correction and punishment, and left them to choose for themselves whether they would be saved or damned, while he, in the meantime, should be gone, as Homer says, to an Ethiopian feast. It is just such a God as this that Aristotle paints, on, paints out to us, that is, who sleeps himself and leaves everyone to use or abuse his long suffering and punishment just as he will. Nor can reason of herself form any other judgment than the diatribe here does. For as she herself snores over and looks with contempt upon divine beings, she thinks concerning God that he sleeps and snores over them too, not exercising his wisdom, will, and presence in choosing, separating, and inspiring, but leaving the troublesome and irksome business of accepting or refusing his long suffering and anger entirely to men this is what we come to when we attempt by human reason to limit and make excuses for God not revering the secrets of his majesty but curiously prying into them being lost in the glory of them instead of making one excuse for God making one excuse for God we pour forth a thousand blasphemies and forgetting ourselves we prate like madmen both against God and against ourselves when we are all the while supposing that we are with a great deal of wisdom speaking both for, and for God and for ourselves. Here then you see what that trope and gloss of the diatribe will make of God and moreover how excellently consistent the diatribe is with itself which before by its one definition made free will one and the same in all men and now in the course of this argumentation forgetting its own definition making one free will to be cultivated and the other uncultivated according to the difference of works of manners and of men Thus making two different free wills, the one that which cannot do good, the other that which can do good, and that by its own powers before grace, whereas its former definition declared that it could not, by those own powers will anything good whatever. Hence, therefore, it comes to pass, that while we do not ascribe unto the will of God only the will and power of hardening, showing mercy, and doing all things, we ascribe unto free will itself the power of doing all things without grace, which nevertheless we declare to be unable to do any good whatever without grace. The similitudes therefore of the sun and of the shower make nothing at all to the purpose. The Christian would use those similitudes more rightly if he were to make the sun and the shower to represent the gospel as Psalm 19 does and as does Hebrews 6, 7 and were to make the cultivated earth to represent the elect and the uncultivated the reprobate for the former are by the word edified and made better while the latter are offended and made worse or if this distinction be not made then as to free will itself that is in all men uncultivated earth In the kingdom of Satan. Section 82 But let us now inquire into the reason... ...why this trope was invented in the passage. It appears absurd, says the diatribe... ...that God, who is not only just but also good... ...should be said to have hardened the heart of a man... ...in order that by his iniquity he might show forth his own power. The same also occurred to Origen, who confesses that the occasion of becoming hardened was given of God, but throws all the fault upon Pharaoh. He has, moreover, made a remark upon that which the Lord saith, For this very purpose have I raised thee up, he does not say, he observes, for this very purpose, have I made thee. Otherwise, Pharaoh could not have been wicked if God had made him such an one as he was. For God beheld all his works, and they were very good. Thus the diatribe. It appears then that, that one of the principal causes why the words of Moses and of Paul are not received is their absurdity but against what article of faith does that absurdity militate or who is offended at it it is human reason that is offended who being blind deaf and pious and sacrilegious in all the words and works of God Is in the case of this passage introduced as a judge of the words and works of God according to the same argument of absurdity you will deny all the articles of faith because it is of all things the most absurd and as Paul saith foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews that God should be man, the son of a virgin, crucified and sitting at the right hand of his father. It is, I say, absurd to believe such things. Therefore, let us invent some tropes with the Arians and say that Christ is not truly God. Let us invent some tropes with the Manichees and say that he is not truly man but a phantom introduced by means of a virgin or a reflection conveyed by a glass which fell and was crucified and in this way we shall handle the scriptures to excellent purpose indeed after all then the tropes amount to nothing nor is the absurdity avoided for it still remains absurd according to the judgment of reason that God who is just and good should exact of free will impossibilities and that when free will cannot will good and of necessity serves sin that sin should yet be laid to its charge and that moreover when he does not give the spirit he should nevertheless act so severely and unmercifully as to pardon or permit to become hardened these things reason still say are not becoming a God good and merciful thus they too far exceed her capacity nor can she so bring herself into subjection as to believe and judge that the God who does such things is good but setting aside faith she wants to feel out and see and comprehend how he can be good and not cruel but she will comprehend that when this shall be said of God he hardens no one he damns no one but he has mercy upon all he saves all and he He has so utterly destroyed hell that no future punishment need be dreaded. It is thus that reason blusters and contends in attempting to clear God and to defend him as just and good. But faith and the spirit judge otherwise who believe that God would be good even though he should destroy all men. And to what profit is it to weary ourselves with all these reasonings in order that we might throw the fault of hardening upon free will? Let all the free will in the world do all it can with all its powers and yet it never will give one proof either that it can avoid being hardened where God gives not his spirit or merit mercy where it is left to its own powers. And what does it signify, whether it be hardened or deserve being hardened, if the hardening be of necessity, as long as it remains in that impotency in which, according to the testimony of the diatribe, it cannot will good. Since, therefore, the absurdity is not taken out of the way by these tropes or if it be taken out of the way greater absurdities still are introduced in their stead and all things are ascribed unto free will away with such useless and seducing tropes and let us cleave close to the pure and simple
1: word of God. The Puritan Hard Drive and the free online Puritan Hard Drive videos are available at PuritanDownloads.com along with many other Puritan and Reformed books for as little as 99 cents each. Hello, and welcome to this introductory video for the Puritan Hard Drive by Stillwater's Revival Books. You will soon see why the Puritan Hard Drive is a technological revolution in Puritan, Reformation, and Covenanter studies. For over 25 years, Stillwater's Revival Books has provided the worldwide Christian community with the finest in Puritan and Reformation resources, including classic and contemporary printed works, inspirational sermons, audiobooks, and videos. In recent years, our collection of great Christian works has more than doubled, growing to a library that would occupy nearly 130 CDs. The Puritan Hard Drive is a tremendous library of over 12,500 Christian resources on an external hard drive that fits easily in your pocket or purse. It features the works of more than 800 classic and contemporary authors, including John Bunyan, Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards, Thomas Manton, Samuel Rutherford, and Charles Spurgeon. Timeless works, like the English Hexapla, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Sketches of the Covenanters, and from the Puritan Divines, the complete 34-volume set of the Puritan Fast Sermons. Many of these books are rare and classic titles unavailable anywhere else. Over 25 years in the making, the Puritan Hard Drive is simply the most extensive Christian collection ever released. The Puritan Hard Drive comprises more than 12,500 Puritan and Reformation resources, over half a million pages of great Christian books, more than 10,000 sermons and audio books in MP3 format, providing years of listening enjoyment, over 70 videos, all in all a library of thousands of exceptional works, accessible, and affordable to everyone. Included on the Puritan hard drive is a custom search engine that makes it easy to find, browse, and organize the resources in your library, and much easier than trying to wade through a typical file directory on your computer. Connect the Puritan hard drive to any available USB port on your PC or Mac. The drive is self-contained, so there's no software to install or configure. Within moments, you can begin exploring the library by running the custom search interface. It's also a knowledge base with information about each work, including the author, title, description, keywords, and subject category. For you techies, this database contains over 4.5 million records of information. For all of us, That means we have an extremely powerful search and study tool. A list of all resources on the Puritan hard drive is available for viewing at any time. Here we see that the list of print materials contains over 2,100 works. This view is ideal for browsing all documents or media files in alphabetical order, by title or by author. The list is rather long. So using the search function of the knowledge base is the easiest way of finding resources of interest to you. For example, let's say that my pastor recommended a book by James Henley Thornwell. I can search the knowledge base by author by typing his name in this field or by selecting it from the complete list of nearly 800 authors provided at the click of a button. Clicking the search button executes the search and immediately returns a list of all resources by this author. In this case, I've quickly found the book that was recommended to me. Clicking on the green icon opens the resource, allowing me to begin my reading. Further details about any resource can be found by clicking on the book cover icon, which opens the resource detail page. From here, I can browse the details of this work. I can add and save my own notes about it and open the resource for reading, listening, or viewing. Your search capabilities don't end there. The majority of the rare, classic works on the Puritan hard drive now contain an embedded index. This means that the actual text of these resources is now fully searchable for the first time in history. Enter a search term in Adobe Acrobat Reader. In this case, a search for the word scripture yields instant results having searchable text also makes it possible to highlight copy and paste the text into another document such as a sermon a lesson plan or a school paper less time spent on research means more time for reading studying and appreciating the resources in your library Just another reason why the Puritan Hard Drive is a technological revolution in Puritan, Reformation, and Covenanter studies. Thank you for watching this introduction to the Puritan Hard Drive by Stillwaters Revival Books, serving Christians worldwide for over 25 years. Join us in our other videos as we demonstrate even more features and functionality of the Puritan Hard Drive. For more information, visit us on the web at puritandownloads.com. Until then, be well and God bless.